Welcome to the Aristocrat Pub in Indianapolis, where a live audience has gathered for episode three of Lou Harry Gets Real. Prove that you're a live audience. A podcast about arts, culture, puns, plays, and stumbling forward through life. On Lou's guest list this evening, we have Jack Everly, principal pops conductor for the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, the Naples Philharmonic Orchestra, and the maestro who leads the National Symphony Orchestra in the annual Capitol Fourth and National Memorial Day concerts in Washington, D.C. Also on the guest list, singer, songwriter, comedian Pat Godwin, who has appeared on just about every morning show in the country, including a lengthy stint on The Bob and Tom Show. I'm Tracy Herring, your co-host for this evening. And now I'd like for you to please welcome a guy who has won a musician's scholarship without being able to play an instrument, who featured in, was featured in a play that one critic called the Theatrical Vomit, bold with former Indianapolis cult Marvin Harrison, and spent the day before he left for college watching the Zagreb Theater Company of Yugoslavia perform a play in Serbo-Croatian on a shuffleboard court, your host, Lou Harry. Thank you. Thanks, Tracy, and good evening to all. About 15 years ago, I co-wrote a book called The Encyclopedia of Guilty Pleasures. To be truthful, which I try to be here because, you know, the name of the show, it was not my idea. A publisher had the idea and approached me, and when a publisher approaches me, I tend to jump with book projects. That's the same way I ended up writing a novelization of the movie Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, one of the worst movies ever made, and how I ended up writing a thing called Husband Training Flashcards under the pseudonym Louise Harriet, because they needed a female writer. The Encyclopedia of Guilty Pleasures was exactly what its title stated, a collection of short entries about the things that many people enjoy but aren't too proud to admit. Everything from airbrush art to Ziggy cartoons. It was not meant to be taken too seriously, but it hoped that we, we hoped that it would take readers on a journey of recognition about the silly things we do and dig, and perhaps even earn a spot in the reading pile in bathrooms across the country. We didn't expect it to get reviewed, but the book was semi-immortalized as the subject of a blistering column in Esquire magazine by best-selling author Chuck Klosterman. The essay was later included in a collection of his pieces, a book that sold a lot more copies than the Encyclopedia of Guilty Pleasures. One positive thing that came out of it, my eldest daughter thought it was really cool that I wrote something that Klosterman believed was worth trashing. <laughs> Klosterman wanted to believe that we thought people should feel guilty about what they like. And our book made a convenient scapegoat for him. But our point wasn't that you should feel guilty about the thousand and one things in the book. It's that many people do. 15 years after writing that book, I'm still thinking about not only what we like, but what we are willing to publicly boast about liking, and what we don't always publicly admit we like. I'm all over the place on this. On the one hand, I believe we have somehow devalued the notion of fun. Too often, I think we treat fun and arts as mutually exclusive. If something makes us smile, it's something of somewhat of lesser value than something quote-unquote serious. The notion that comedies and comedic performances rarely win Oscar, Oscars is often cited as evidence of this. On the other hand, it seems to have become more difficult to sell the arts unless there's a fun aspect to market. Art museums around the country are pushing whimsical experiences to lure in bigger crowds. 
you don't see too many tourism brochures pushing the serious educational or enlightening value of a place's attractions. We have this love relationship with popular, with fun. Both of our guests today and our co-hosts deal in part with smile inducement. And I want to dance with that a little bit over the next hour and a half or so. Improvisational talents such as Tracy, who works with comedy sports, uh, exist in the moment. If you've ever been to a good improv show, you know the frustration of afterwards trying to explain to someone who wasn't there what was so funny. But you can't because a big part of the pleasure is knowing that it's in the moment. In the world of stand-up, uh, stand-up comedy, the lines tend to be more polished but are equally ephemeral. I spent 10 years from the mid-80s to the mid-90s doing stand-up comedy professionally in clubs and casinos. It was always a pleasure when I was opening for Pat Godwin, who's our guest today. He was a comic who was always felt in the moment, but I knew took his craft very seriously. And I'm thrilled that he's with us. It's harder to be spontaneous or to pretend to be when you've got a full or symphony orchestra guided by your baton, which makes it even more magical when the Hilbert Circle Theater, home to the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, is alive with the sounds shaped by Jack Everly and his orchestra. There are a few things I enjoy more than the ISOs performing Leonard Bernstein's Overture to Candide, and it's, the ISO's concert version of Guys and Dolls is on my short list of the best concerts I've ever seen in my life. They were smiles, all smiles, in experience and in memory. So I'm glad you're all here to share. I'm looking forward to talking with them about these and many other subjects. Um, Tracy. Yes. Please. We'll get to our other guests in a moment. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm curious, because I know you uh, from improv work, mm -hmm. but I also know you as an actress here in Indianapolis. Is there a difference when you, before a show, like what's that, is that 20 minutes before you go on different when you're doing an improv show versus doing a scripted piece? Well, I mean, both of them have a sense of nervousness to them. Uh, when we're doing improv, um, there's the oh god am I gonna have to play jam like I had to last night which <laughs> makes me kind of want to peel my skin off a little bit it's not my stronger game um, mm -hmm. but you know you're just gonna roll with it no matter what um, and you're also working with an ensemble so mm -hmm. I know that other people and we always say this before every match I got your back I got your back and I know I've got six or seven other people there to help mm -hmm. me out with it that's part of the ritual of saying yeah, that yeah that I got your back and that you're not up there alone it's not just about you mm -hmm. um, so when you are going to tank you know you've got other people there who are not wanting to just tank with you and <laughs> will uh, you know it's not up to you you're not the only person who has to come up with everything mm -hmm. so there's that um, but going um, you know, when you have a scripted performance, however, there's that you can actually screw this up because there is a way it's supposed to happen. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, things start to you forget something. You don't, there's nothing to forget when mm. you're doing improv because mm. there's nothing that exists except for what's been put out there. Um, but there is something that's supposed to happen in a scripted play, and if you, um, you know, improv mm. helps in those moments so that you can sort of fumble your way through and hope. Mm. You hope that it'll come off a little naturally, like, oh, I, yeah, that, that makes sense. Do um, audience have different, do you, do you feel a different expectation in the audience um, from one to the other? Well, oddly enough, the uh, plays that I have done um, actually have been fairly serious. They haven't been uh, comedic. And I feel like comedy is the one thing you can actually fail at. Because, <laughs> well, there's one, mm. one outcome you expect from a comedy. If you don't get make the people laugh, 
you really kind of have failed yeah. in that. Um, anything else, even a drama, not everybody has to sob or whatever. Right. Um, and if they hate How many it, of us have sobbed at a show at one point or another, most of us? <laughs> Um, but you don't have to to still get some impact from it. But if you're doing a comedy, there is one outcome that's definitely expected. So you kind of can fail there. Well, let's see how we fail with this. Um, as those of you who have heard the podcast before or have attended the live show, we tend to uh, get a little punny at this point. Um, I put out a call last week on social media, knowing that Jack Everly was going to be our guest. And one of Jack's specialties is the Great American Songbook. I thought how fragile some of these songs are, these classic songs. Sometimes one word could ruin them in the title. So I asked friends and family and people out there in the network uh, to ruin a great American songbook song by adding one word to the title. Some of the examples, feel free to chime in if you have some All as right. well, Tracy. Uh, Pal Joey Buttafuco would probably ruin uh, that. Uh, not in the mood. It'll kind of change things a little bit. Uh, I left my heart monitor in San Francisco. That would be an awkward call to the airport. Um, what can I say after I say I'm sorry, psych? Singing in the acid rain. Oh, okay, all right. I can tell you. Uh, that old black lung magic. That would be fun. Uh, take the a-hole train. <laughs> awkward. Anything uh, goes south. Anything goes south like that joke just did. Um, stardust mites. Dust mites. No. Okay. Okay. We're good. Uh, yes, sir. That's my baby daddy. I thought that was a Jerry Springer musical. Would that be? Uh, making whoopee cushions. That would be fun. So those of us who grew up working on the boardwalk. Uh, you got one? Uh, the call girl from Ipanema. <laughs> yeah. Runs the price up a little. I've got my love handles to keep me warm. Uh, of course, Stormy Daniels' weather is always good. Very topical. Uh, you goose stepped out of my dream. That would be a little frightening. Uh, summer breaking wind. Yeah, we're we're gonna. I think we maybe get a couple more out of this. I'm in the mood for Courtney Love. <laughs> Not very often. No, secondhand smoke gets in your eyes. Uh, bewitched, bothered, beheaded, and bewildered. That would do it. Uh, we got to get some good laugh to end with, don't we? Uh, I've got the world on the G-string. No. <laughs> Blues clues in the night. Is that going to work? Uh, no. Just me and my shadow government. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Okay. We might want to wrap things up on that and not mention Satin Blow-Up Doll or Mac the Ginsu Knife. We'll wrap it up. <laughs> At that point, um, during the interview, by the way, we take questions that we'll um, ask uh, our guests after the break. So if you have, if you could supply questions, there's sheets of paper and things. But also, if you have better ones than we've come up with, we may bring some more back after intermission. So feel free to uh, share some of your own ideas. See the benefits of being part of the live audience? Um, for now, though. That's probably the worst way he's ever been introduced. Um, I want to welcome our first guest. As was mentioned, Jack Everly is principal pops conductor of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, Baltimore Symphony, National Arts Center Orchestra, Ottawa of Ottawa, Canada, Naples Philharmonic. Um, in and around those, he's conducted for the Los Angeles Philharmonic at the Hollywood Bowl, the New York Pops at Carnegie Hall, and more. TV audiences see him every 4th of July uh, on PBS, leading the Capitol Fourth Orchestra. Um, I mean, that's performing in front of thousands, thou hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands live, though, right? And those aren't like Trump crowd estimates. Those are actual, 
numbers. Please welcome Maestro Jack Everly. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Let's let's go way back. You uh -oh. conducted for the American Ballet Theater, and I just want to know: Did Barishnikov tell you himself that you had the gig, or did he like have an assistant um, break the news? Okay, to you? this is how it happened. Uh, I had been doing nothing but Broadway shows, which is fine, of course. I love them as my passion. And then uh, that led to uh, guesting as an audition with American Ballet Theater. So I did, uh, my first was Graduation Ball, which is a one act at the Kennedy Center, followed by full length Romeo and Juliet, and then uh, full length Cinderella. So Cinderella finishes, everything's happily ever after. And I'm in the wings when it's over. And uh, one of the greatest ballerinas and, and ballet mistresses of all, Georgina Parkinson, was talking to me about how the performance went. And uh, there was Misha suddenly in front of us. And she said, oh, and she was British. She said, Misha, Misha darling, Misha darling. What, what about him? And she pointed to me, because uh, we all knew that this was my final ballet as an audition to join the staff of uh, uh, American Ballet Theater. And he looked at me and he squinted as though he didn't know who that <clears throat> I was. And he went, oh yeah, yeah, he's, he's good. Uh, we keep him. <laughs> and that's how I ended up being at American Ballet Theater for 14 years and I became the music director because we keep him. <laughs> and that's how that happened. How much, how much involvement did you have him over the, with him over the course of the years? A lot. My, uh, I was there for 14 and he was there for the first seven. Mm -hmm. And I gotta tell you, uh, dry as dust, loved a sense of humor and no nonsense, but loved to smile. And it was a joy working with him, it really was. Well, did you find it, what are some of the differences as a, as a conductor leading a ballet orchestra versus leading a Broadway? Ah, well, there, first of all, there are a lot of similarities. Um, during eight shows a week of a musical on Broadway, you have to maintain things. It has to be uh, spontaneous in subtle moments, but pretty much the same tempi for the dance numbers, etc. The pacing has to be the same because the scenery is being changed um, at a certain time and uh, it has certain pacing because that's how long it takes to get the drop in, the set's off and you have to pace it all the same way. Uh, ballet, on the other hand, um, is changing with every cast. Tempe are slightly different with every uh, principal dancer, etc. And so you have to be so in the moment, you have to watch for that. So it's very much ebb and flow. Now, going back to the Broadway yeah. work, now the first show I ever, the first musical I ever saw on Broadway was they're playing our song oh with Robert Klein and Lucy yeah, Arnaz. Yeah, so you yeah. were conductor the on the tour of that, yeah, right? the National Company with Victor Garber and uh, Ellen Green had just left and a new singer, her name was Marcia Skaggs, had come in and she was great. How did that, how did that job happen? And you did a number of projects with oh, Marvin yeah, Hammond, Marvin. correct? Well, yeah. I had just done Chorus Line in Hawaii. We did it for there one summer. And As so, a, at a regional theater or part of a tour? It was uh, a, a very special company put together because it was not a national tour or anything like that. It was uh, put together by a local producer in Honolulu and he got the best people from the national companies and the international companies. Anyway, so I did that and then, you know, every job ends. I was back in New York City looking for work and I knew they were looking for a conductor on the national company of their playing our song. And so I called Marvin and... Uh, Marvin, marvelous guy, uh, was also one of the 
uh, fastest talkers in the world because that's how fast his brain functions. So uh, we were speaking, and I was very nervous. You know, I said, "Oh, hello, Mr. Hamlish. Uh, I, w- I conducted Hello Dolly on Broadway with Carol Channing." He went, "Yeah. So what? What else?" And I said, "Oh, well, uh, 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 chorus line uh, this summer in Honolulu." He went, "Oh, okay. I'll get back to you, kid." So he called Bayork Lee. He said, "Is it any good?" You were about how old at the time? I was twenty. Seven or eight. Okay, so kid is in the ballpark. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Not now, of course. But anyway, so he called me back a day later and said, "Okay, go to Chicago. You're going to join the company there." Bang. And wow. a year and a half later, it was over. But I mean, that was incredible. That's great. Now, yeah. How much time is there often between? You know, you're doing a tour. A tour ends. Do you already have the next show booked? Seldom. Or is it? Seldom. Yeah. When you're freelancing in musical theater in New York, you always think your last job is your last. That's pretty much how you think. Every actor feels that way, every dancer, singer, and probably every music director is the same way. So you're always looking for that next thing. Did you do that final Carol Channing tour of Hello Dolly? Not the tour, but the Broadway engagement. Oh, you did the Broadway. Yeah, it was my debut. This is so weird. I was 26, (laughs) and it was my debut on Broadway. Carol Channing, Hello Dolly, Lunt Fontan Theater. Couldn't believe my good fortune. You know, I've only been out of IU School of Music and in New York City for three years. And it was just one of those confluences of events where I knew the right person, I auditioned for the right person, bang. I started off as pianist, assistant conductor on this tour, which was nine months long. And then the conductor left. And I had been doing every eighth performance, Mm -hmm. including Starlight Musicals here in Indianapolis, in Kansas City, in St. Louis. So by then, Carol knew that I knew the show. And I understood her. Which isn't easy, by the way. Uh, she's a wonderfully complicated person. So there we. There, so she said, uh, when this guy said, "I'm going to go back to Europe and do opera," you know, she said, "I want him." And she pointed to me, and I got the job. And three months later, we were in New York City on Broadway. So that's how I made my, my debut at the age of 26. Fast forward, 1995, I believe it was, and she had been on the road with another revival of Hello Dolly. And uh, that conductor was perhaps not quite understanding what she needed. I'll just put it that way. And she called me. I'm still with Ballet Theater. And she said, can you take a sabbatical? Because I need you. (laughs) And I said, okay, I'll ask. So I did. And they said, okay. And we did this limited engagement on Broadway in 1995. So those are my bookends of Broadway. Carol Channing, Hello Dolly, at the Lunt Fontaine Theater. What are the odds of that? That's not possible. But I saw it that, was. that 95 tour in yeah. Philadelphia when it came through. Okay. And my memory is this, and I want to, ver- maybe you could verify, maybe not, because you didn't do the tour. I remember there being a net over the orchestra. Oh, there always was, in. ever since the original. Really? Because a dancer did fall in in 1964. So there is a story behind it. And I'm she not... fell over, actually, into the audience a couple times, too. But there's now a net because you could do yourself okay. some real damage. So, and, and there's a, in the Dolly number, the waiters jump over the pit, or the passerella. So they jump over the musicians, onto the passerella, the runway, around, and then they pose. Okay. Immediate freeze. Well, you know, what are the odds? A lot. That you fall in the pit. And so ever since, there's this rope netting yeah. that stops you from hitting the musicians. Right. Okay. So, okay. I'm yeah. Not having, yeah. Wow, that's good. I was worried I was hallucinating that. I thought it was just for her, but it's for the no. leaping over. Yeah, it's for the waiters. Wow. What, what's the, when you've conducted for shows, what's sort of the longest gap there is between, there's been between music? And what do the musicians do if they're waiting 12 oh, minutes? The longest gap is in 1776. Uh-huh. There is 28 minutes of dialogue. 
And the music, I was at, I saw the show at the Majestic, and I remember I was in the balcony looking down, and every musician left the pit. <laughs> so, you know, they're out in the alley having a cigarette, and they came back in, you know, when they knew that next number was coming up, with William Daniels, probably. Uh-huh. That's the longest dialogue section uh-huh. uh, without music in any musical theater piece. So they can sneak out. Yeah, they left. <laughs> I, mean, do they, do other, I mean, do they often, like, are they doing Sudoku down there? Do they have books? Do they? Yes, everything. You name it, they're doing it when it comes to books, reading material. Sometimes if it's 1776, they're in the green room playing poker. Right. Yeah. Well, flashing ahead to, but obviously you can't do that with a live symphony orchestra on stage. You're right. What, I mean, what happens when there are musicians who, I mean, Sometimes in some pieces of music, are there times when the percussionist isn't doing anything for 25 minutes? Well, we have that marvelous thing, those doors swing open on the sides of the stage. And indeed, if you don't have the the next four pieces, you tend to leave. Yeah, we just last night finished Sutton Foster, Mm -hmm. and she's magnificent. But the instrumentation changes in her charts. And sure enough, there were like four people who didn't play the next 10 numbers. And so, yeah. yeah. Could slide off. Yeah. What was the first, do you remember the first time anyone called you maestro? Is that a, did oh, that seem gosh. strange? Probably it was in great sarcasm at first. <laughs> uh, that tends to happen when you are associated with symphonies. Yeah. And we, with ballet theater, for example, we had a different symphony orchestra in every city we went to. Unlike New York City ballet, we didn't travel with our own orchestra. Okay. So you would, that's where you refine your rehearsal technique. It's kind of wonderful. Um, and in, when we were in Japan, for example, we played three different theaters in Tokyo. It's absurd. Three different theaters, three different orchestras in the same city, and you'd go there and rehearse Romeo and Juliet every other day. It's, it's quite bizarre, but it, it refines your technique like crazy. Did it seem to reach three different audiences? Or Definitely. You must remember the... the uh, <laughs> is it like it's so how people are with densely packed sometimes? in Tokyo. That's the one we don't go to. No, no, no. <laughs> it's not that. It's just it's so hard to get anywhere in Tokyo because okay. the, the population is so dense mm-hmm. there that they actually do. NHK has this theater and this orchestra, and someone else over there and over there. It's amazing. Are there composers in the repertoire that necessarily you know play better in certain countries than others? Are no, there, are there ones no, not in, in no, not countries? that. There are just certain composers who are better. Than <laughs> <laughs> For example, okay. Ludwig Minkus wrote two of the most popular ballets, La Bayadere and Don Quixote. And Bershnikov had a great success with Quixote in reviving it for the very first time. But the music is considered drivel. It's fun, but it's oom-pa-pa, oom-pa-pa, and there's not much else going on. Whereas Tchaikovsky, mm-hmm. come on. You know, or Poulenc, or Mozart, and we use all of those composers at Ballet Theater too. You've recorded a few, some CDs. How has that market changed? We, we hear about it oh. with how it's affected pop music and how it's affected rock. Yeah. How has it affected classical and pops? Oh, it's just a whole different world now. You know, I still collect CDs. I collect SACDs. You know, I still do. And uh, on my home theater, you know, three channels, four channels, whatever, it's wonderful. But a lot of people just don't. They stream it, and the purchasing of CDs is just not happening as we know. So it has really decimated the classical recording scene. The last recording I did was at Abbey Road, uh, you know, all the overtures of Julie Stein, and that was it. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's sad to see that go away. 
I think it's a wonderful thing and it always has been. But let's move into a different age and let's stream the next Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra performance, for example. Can you, I mean, how, how different are those sounds from you know, streaming versus Depends on how you recording listen to it. versus... Depends on how you listen to it. If it's compressed in the way you listen to it, forget it, it's awful. But if it isn't, if you have certain devices at home, components that will indeed uncompress it, mm -hmm. it can be pretty magical. It really can. Was there a time when those, you know, being somebody who was recording carried a certain level of oh. prestige or expectation? Huge. And how does that, does that help you get gigs in other, you know, with other symphonies around the country, around the world? Well, it used to. Yeah. Um, we, it's hard to uh, imagine this now, but the Arthur Fiedler and the Boston Pops were the most recorded orchestra, and that held great power there in Boston for that. With RCA Victor withdrawing, there is no recording contract for the Boston Pops, and they're even self-producing their own, as an example. Really? It has really changed. The world is different. Are they, no, I'll throw this at you. There, there are, going to see a Broadway show. Yeah. There are overtures that just are thrilling, and there are ones that are like, okay, can we start the show? Get the curtain up, please. Yeah. What, what to you makes a good overture? It's one that just, the response is emotional. And that's why I recorded all the overtures of Julie Stein, because Julie Stein knew that what you're supposed to do is excite audience members to get the curtain up. And that was the purpose of an overture, not just one nice tune after another, but to make you just get the curtain up. We're dying to hear this. We're dying. And, and that's what happened. Gypsy, Funny Girl. We just did the overture to Funny Girl for Sutton Foster. It was a great way to start such an evening, you know? Uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Peter Pan, uh, Bells Are Ringing. They're all marvelous overtures. That's the purpose of an overture. When it just becomes nice tunes, all right, you're reminded in a revival that, oh yeah, okay, this is a lovely Gershwin score. Mm -hmm. But chances are it's not going to get you like an overture that Julie Stein would write. That's the purpose. Can you name a few other, other ones that you, that you love to? Oh, well, as you said, Candide. That's one of the most incredible of all time. Um, it's also one of the hardest things to play for the musicians because if you do the original tempo, rather than the symphonic tempo yeah. that gets rather stately in comparison. It's hard, really hard, and you ha when it's successful, you have a fantastic response. And a great time is had by all when right. it's successful. But it's like, okay, the train's leaving the station, good luck, and the tempo is so fast the way it was originally conceived. So that's a great one. Um, other Bernstein overtures are also terrific, but nothing uh, is as good as Candide. Julie Stein really wrote the book on overtures, I must say. Rajan Hammerstein overtures I love a lot. Um, I'm doing Rajan Hammerstein next week in Ottawa, and we're using the film orchestrations, which are incredible. They're so symphonic and lush, whereas the theater orchestrations are more, they're thinner and a little bit more immediate. They tighter? A little tighter, yeah. But, but the film orchestrations breathe because they're just bigger, yeah. and it's great. For the sense of, of the size difference. I mean, if you're talking about a regular symphony orchestra performing it versus mm -hmm. yeah. it being recorded for a movie. Exactly. The um, symphony orchestras, of course, are somewhere around 60 or 70 musicians. The orchestras at 20th Century Fox that did most of the Rajan Hammerstein musicals numbered about 50 to 60. Mm -hmm. And 
the Broadway size orchestra is anywhere. Well, these days, yeah. sadly, as we know, maybe ten. Yeah, you're and, lucky. If you have or, a softball and team. you're thank you, thank you very much. The current My Fair Lady is twenty nine. Oh, okay. Stunning. If you have, you've got to see that revival of My Fair Lady. It's and incredible. It's at the, the Beaumont Lincoln Center, South Pacific. Yes. Full, and and on the town have yes. great exactly. orchestra. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, sometimes it's a half dozen people. It's right. Just, yeah. Synthesizers. Yeah. <laughs> um, when, when you play with an orchestra that you haven't played with before, how quickly can you tell who are the players who really aren't into doing pops? Who would rather, you know, is there, are there some musicians who are still in the, we're here to play classical and we're slumming if we're doing pops? Let me address that on a slightly larger <laughs> plateau, okay. if I may. Um, our wonderful symphony orchestras in this country do a different concert every single week. Most of them have gotten into the mindset of, is this any good, what we're doing this week? Mm. It could be, a, frankly, forgive me, a secondary Haydn symphony. And they'll, okay, fine, mm. fine, great. <laughs> or it could be a first-class Broadway overture like Gypsy. Mm. They get it, they do get it. Things have changed in the okay. industry. Um, Why? But it has to be good because they're doing something different every week. Last mm -hmm. week here it was Sutton Foster. This coming week, what is the classical repertoire? Mm -hmm. It has to be up to their value as musicians. So that is what it is mm -hmm. when I go to different orchestras. It isn't so much, oh, it's pops, who cares? Mm -hmm. That used to be. Now there is this knowledge of the intrinsic worth of, yes, but a different public is coming to hear us because of this repertoire. Mm -hmm. So I don't see the snobbism that used to exist so much. And when does something that, I mean, eventually something that was pops, popular, when does it become part of the classical, I mean, if you could, you know, oh, well, slip in a John Williams score into a classical program, can you get away with, I mean, is that easier to get away with now? Or that you get rebellion from the classical audience? When, sort of what's on the bubble? Well, for example, the Oxford to Candide used to be strictly pops. Right. Not so much anymore. Yeah. You hear that now on any number of things, uh, any concerts. Mm -hmm. uh, Rhapsody in Blue mm -hmm. used to be exclusively pops. No such thing. Mm -hmm. You hear it constantly, and, and, and American in Paris. Yeah. Things like that have gone over into uh, the other genre entirely. And that's fine. Audiences yeah. love it. Why not? Mm -hmm. Does the one of the things you created, I think people here in Indianapolis don't necessarily realize how much the Symphonic Pops Consortium has sort of connected orchestras around the country. It Tell did. a little bit about how that evolved and was that it did, an odd say. and radical idea to begin with? That orchestras could come together and agree on something is a very <laughs> radical idea, let me tell you that. Uh, so for a while there we had this marvelous thing that we would create things here and uh, send it out to the world, mm -hmm. and they would have to do their own lo somewhat local producing, but we gave them the repertoire. Um, they said, here, you can find this. This is how you find this repertoire. And we provided the, the singers and some wardrobe, and it became a very theatrical thing that had not been seen with orchestras all over the country. Mm -hmm. Well, the extreme version of the theatrical thing you folks have been doing for I'm not sure how many years now with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra's Yuletide celebration, oh, yeah. which again is an unusual. I mean, it seems like every arts organization around the country, any performing arts organization at least, and most some not, 
are looking for what can we do to get the holiday audience? What can we do in December mm-hmm. to bring it? And you see it with art museums, you see it with historical museums, finding the thing yeah. that can be counted on. Um, with theaters, you know, A Christmas Carol, it's been said, has done more for financing the arts than the National Endowment <laughs> over the last 50 years. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about how Yuletide celebration evolves. And for those listening who may not know about it, how do you define it? I always like to say to a, to a, a certain generation will understand this. It's Radio City meets Ed Sullivan meets the symphonic set. And it's all of that, all those sensibilities together. Now, what Ed Sullivan was, for example, was a, uh, a variety show when you get right down to it. Radio City Music Hall is essentially a gigantic variety show that's costumed and choreographed and uh, all the music of the season is arranged beautifully. Uh, that's what we do and it's almost in miniature because you know the Hilbert Circle Theater uh, seats what 1600, 1700 people and what we cram into that stage with scenery and costumes and dancers is amazing and it's been refined over the years when it originally started over 30 years ago it was I think it was three acts and one was uh, uh, the symphonic chorus in the orchestra, the next one was a, a dancing ensemble with the orchestra, and the last one was kind of like a sing-along with the audience. Mm-hmm. And so, boy, has that evolved. <laughs> We're not doing anywhere near that right now, but what we have is sort of a, the approach of a Broadway show and a variety show, and we try to keep it light. We change it every year except for two things. Towards the night before Christmas with the reindeer puppets and all that because the audiences demand it and um, Tap Dancing Santas, as you know. We changed that one year and we got (coughs) letters, shall we say. Um, It was still a tap number, but they said, no, 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 no. Santa Clauses, you have to have Santa Clauses. And so that came back. Uh, It's never been away ever since. Uh, But it's, it's fun, it's a great tradition. You know, my dad had a shoe store in Richmond, Indiana, and he always used to come see the Christmas show when he was alive, and he said, you know what I love best about this show? I went, yeah, Dad, what? <laughs> he said, the fact that families come and dress up and they're in the mm-hmm. lobby taking their pictures by the Christmas tree. I said, thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I love that about uh, that. And I still think that to this very day. I, when I come in <laughs> to do a show, I look down the lobby and there are all these families all dressed up having their picture taken by the Christmas tree. It's just a marvelous tradition. And it's up to how many performances a year now? Oh, it varies on the calendar. This year we're opening November 30, and I think this year, therefore, we have 32 performances, something like that. Yeah, it's amazing. Other orchestras are just green with envy because they're struggling with two pops of a holiday concert, and then they switch over to do one performance of the Messiah, and Mm -hmm. they all wish they could do what we do here. Um, It it does take a commitment, I must say, and the, the institution of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra has stood by it steadfastly. There's a significant impact on the bottom line at this point. Sure it does. Yeah. Yeah. And we're thrilled. We're just thrilled that it is part of what the Indianapolis Symphony is to so many different people in the community. You've had a range of hosts for that. What do you look for in deciding who's going to host it? How far ahead do you have to make that happen with a month of bookings? About two years. Two years ahead? Yeah. So this year we have Josh Kaufman again, winner of The Voice and uh, Angela Brown, incredible opera diva. And this, <laughs> they both have different senses of humor, if you will, and I can't wait till to, to that comes crashing together. <laughs> Where, you know, we start rehearsals in a few weeks. And uh, 
God, it's going to be really something. We have a, a marvelous new uh, addition to the show this year only. It's Expressions, and they were just winning awards as this marvelous dance troupe. It's located in our community. And I just arranged this uh, a swing nutcracker for them. We're calling them the Holly Jolly Dollies, and they're, <laughs> they're Raggedy Ann's. And it's, I'm so excited by this, I really am. Uh, yeah, if you're gonna do 30 shows of a Christmas show, <laughs> you better like music of the season, and I do. Okay. We've been taking my grandmother there for the last three years, and oh, good. she will talk about that for the next three weeks. <laughs> uh, you know, just bragging on how her granddaughters, who we don't see her as much as we should, but for the next three weeks, we are the best people on the planet. <laughs> um, when you you've done a number, I mentioned the Guys and Dolls concert. Yeah, which. I saw that twice the same day. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, what what works in that concert format, and what shows wouldn't you want to? You know, that you maybe love the score, but wouldn't necessarily want to do in a symphonic format. You uh, mentioned that marvelous word, entertainment, mm -hmm. and that is so important. Sweeney Todd can be entertaining, but on a very macabre level okay it's great music great score not gonna see Sweeney Todd not gonna see <laughs> Sweeney Todd anytime soon yeah, I don't right. think and yet something as serioso if you will as Les Miserables mm -hmm. great score not what we would call Hello Dolly entertaining but nonetheless very fulfilling and you don't have to worry about that thank you that's <laughs> on our bucket or falling into the pit that's on our bucket list <laughs> truly as is My Fair Lady mm -hmm and uh, West Side Story. We're pretty much nailing that down. That's coming up reasonably soon. So it's a combination of what's entertaining, what is great music, worthy of a symphony orchestra, etc. All those things. One I have to ask you about, and I know, I don't want to get into gossipy kind of thing oh, about no. some of the people you've had performing with the Pops, but I have, this is another one I have to ask you. Liza Minnelli performing a number of years ago. Yeah. Wonderful concert. I don't know if any of you saw that concert. She came out to do whatever the opening number was, was, you know, all Liza all over the place, and then <laughs> turned around and said, you know what, stop, stop, stop. And she stopped the orchestra. And she said, I can do better than that, or something, something like that, I'm paraphrasing, but my memory is her saying, I can do better than that, can we start again? And you started them up again, and she did it, and the audience just roared and loved it, and were all behind it, and I swear that was set. I. That I would that think so she's, she's done that it. before. Okay. Yes. Uh, on the other hand, she's also gone completely up before uh -huh. where she forgot what song she was singing and the lyrics and things like that. So, frankly, why not? We've all come there to worship her for heaven's sake. <laughs> so, do whatever you want to do and we're with you. You know, she's, she's very smart about that. Okay. Well, she that knew she had the audience in the palm of her oh, yeah. hand. Oh, yeah. It was. And no, they didn't rehearse that. But, but that was not rehearsed with the orchestra. No. Okay, one more bit of information. Um, whether you want to name names or not, or are some of the personalities that you have to work with challenging in different ways? And can you Whatever talk about those challenges? Whatever do you mean by that? Uh, some of those challenges? Let's see. Yes, what immediately comes to mind. We heard about P.B. Newworth. That's <laughs> who came to mind. <laughs> I had always admired B.B. Newworth because I saw, uh, I loved her on, in the, Cheers. Cheers, and then Frasier. That's why we have a live audience yes, right yes, there. Yes. Thank, See, you. thank you so much for that. And then I saw her on Broadway in Chicago. And I was just blown away by this talent. So I was just looking forward to working with her so much. I, 
Uh, if, uh, if you've ever worked with someone you could refer to as just a cloud of doom, <laughs> um, I hope this doesn't get back to anyone inappropriately, but she is, she is Lilith, uh, I found, anyway, in our working relationship, and uh, not in a happy, ha-ha <laughs> way, just really, really dry and dark, and it wasn't... Uh, you know, talent notwithstanding, it was an evening of uh, Kurt Vile and uh, John Kander. <coughs> uh, some of Kurt Vile's stuff is very challenging for audiences today, and originally she wanted it to be all Kurt Vile, and we said, no, 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 that's not going to work. Uh, we know, we do know our audiences, and you know, so there is a relationship, as you know, mm -hmm. between the music of Kander and Kurt Vile. And so we thought, okay, fine, that'll be great, because uh, Kander wrote some uplifting things, of course, too, with Fred Ebb, and did she choose one of the uplifting things? No. Not no, one. no. So it was a very dark evening, mm -hmm. and uh, yes, I remember that right. quite vividly. We, got, we also did, uh, right after Indianapolis, about two months later, Baltimore. Same concert, and uh, we got to this marvelous new concert hall that we're, we you had two concert halls in, in Baltimore and then Bethesda. We open all the pops in Bethesda at Strathmore, and she looked around this beautiful new concert hall. She went, "Wow, it's amazing what you can do with popsicle sticks, isn't it?" <laughs> and they had just spent eighteen trillion dollars on this on this concert hall. I went, "Oh my heavens, could you be any sour more sour than that?" So it was tough. And give us the give us the wonderful person who you'd love to work with any day of the week. The, fortunately, that's a very long list of people. Yeah, very long. Uh, just, you know, last night, Sutton Foster, she is a gem. I told her, you know, not since Mary Martin, and I got to work with Mary once, um, have I ever felt such sincerity in, with the way someone sings A Cockeyed Optimist from South mm -hmm. Pacific. And it's just so innocent and easy and full of sunshine, and that's Sutton as an example. Lots of people, you know, Carol Channing had her moments, but what I learned from her, just enormous. Uh, Anita Gillette, uh, even Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, I, you know, I did a concert with the San Francisco Symphony with her, and she was she's just so in the moment and so unpretentious. And you just think, what an incredible talent! I don't believe this is so real, so sincere, and so honest. And it is. And those are the people you want to work with day in and day out. We're going to take more questions uh, from the audience. We hope you're scribbling down some uh, that we'll address at. Uh, in the second half, but first I want to thank again Jack Everly for coming in and joining us after a busy weekend of shows. Um, switching gears a little bit, I want to introduce uh, Pat Godwin. Pat has been making me laugh since I opened for him back in the comedy clubs in Philadelphia in the mid-80s. Um, that was during the comedy club boom when it seemed like every club and, you know, there was clubs and comedy nights everywhere. It was great for steady work and for hell gigs that popped up, and we'll probably talk about some of those. Uh, Pat not only worked in those clubs in the evening, and since he was 20, he didn't take a job outside of the entertainment world. He's been working steadily since then in clubs, but he's also a coveted guest on morning radio. Uh, the limited sleep time, perhaps, but it increased his exposure. He was part of the Philadelphia Morning Zoo, was a regular on the nationally syndicated Bob and Tom show, still heard there very often. You might have seen him on Last Comic Standing on TV uh, or the Irish Comedy Tour. Uh, he played Pinball Wizard with Pete Townsend, pissed off Don McLean, and spilled coffee on Keith Richard. Please welcome 
Pat Godwin. I just gained all this weight for a movie I want to watch. So I'm uh, <laughs> uh, uh, hearing Lou speak, it reminded me of the old days and a couple of bits that I don't really get a chance to do anymore because the audiences have changed. Uh, they're younger, they have no attention span, but I think you guys look very sophisticated. This might be a lot of fun. Uh, like I said, uh, I met you in Philadelphia, uh, like you said. Uh, I'm Irish, my dad is from Ireland. Uh, got me drinking at a very early age as part of our culture. He'd yell at me at the dinner table, finish all your beer, young man, or you'll get no whiskey for dessert. <laughs> there are sober kids in China. <laughs> Drink up. Dad, it's a school night. It's Miller time. <laughs> so that would lead me into this bit, which I really love. I haven't done it in a long time. Uh, uh, he brought a great uh, amount of Irish music into the home, and I loved, loved the band U2 until Bono, lead singer of U2, started to talk. Remember when Bono just sang and the world was beautiful? Bono, at this point, so full of himself, can take any song and make it sound special. Bono, from U2, taking any song and making it sound special. There was a farmer who had a dog. Oh, and Bingo was his name. Singing B, more be a be a hen. This one's for all the dogs in shelters. Scooby Doo. That's the one I used to do back in Philadelphia. I am winded. It's a nice haircut. Wish I could do that. <laughs> Beautiful head of hair, you do that to it. Oh my gosh. Who's the youngest person here at this crowd? I wanna, I've been doing so many things for a wide, uh, wide variety. How old are you? 27. 27, ouch, what year were you born? You can do math. I can't, it, does, uh, it depends on your birthday. Don't get smart with me. <laughs> Take you back to 91, little band out of South Carolina. Who need, who need the blowfish? Here we go. <laughs> we come from different worlds. I'm an older man and you're a younger girl. You're 27, heck, I'm over 45. When I was your age, you weren't even alive. Right. What I wanted to do was, um, I used to do Springsteen a lot. I'm a huge Springsteen fan of Bruce Springsteen. I can sing like that, I can write like that. Any Springsteen song, all you need is a girl, a car, job you hate, town you want to leave. That's the Springsteen formula. <laughs> I need a female volunteer to prove my point. Any, any, it could be anybody. Do, do, would, would this work with you down front? Do you want to be the volunteer? I just get your info. It's pretty easy. Watch. What's your name? Heidi. Perfect. That's my mom's name is Heidi. That's weird. <laughs> so we have Heidi. We're doing a Springsteen song. You need a girl, a car, job you hate, town you want to leave. Heidi, what kind of car do you drive? An old one. What kind of, what, the exact kind of car? Hyundai, that's fine. Springsteen wouldn't sing about that, but I'm going to make it work. <laughs> Hi day with, and sleep. Hi day, <laughs> Heidi with the Hyundai. A lot of smart alecky women tonight here. Tonight. Mm -hmm. smart. Boy, that got a weird reaction. <laughs> Heidi with the Hyundai. Uh, what do you do for a living? I'm a proofreader. That'll fit nicely into a song. <laughs> proofreader. <laughs> here we go. Uh, and where are you from, Heidi? Jasper, Indiana. Jasper, Indiana. Here we go. Let's review. 
doing a Springsteen song, you need a girl, a car, job, you hate town, you want to leave. We have Heidi, Hyundai, proofreader, that's going to be the tough one, and uh, Jasper, Indiana. Please welcome, like he's actually here, you're going to play the part of Springsteen's ex-girlfriend, it throws him off. Please welcome, like he's actually here, Bruce Springsteen! Hey guys, doing tonight? <laughs> doing a podcast at the top of a restaurant. Having a great time. Almost like my Broadway show, Intimate. I hit the stage. It was not really a stage. I hit the floor. I look out and there she is still pretty as a picture. Heidi, is that you? Are you Are you married now? No. You got a boyfriend? No. Is there another question I should be asking? <laughs> How many cats do you have, Heidi? Four cats! <laughs> that explains a lot, Heidi. <laughs> Wrote a song for you a long time ago. It was just too painful. Putting a CD I'd like to do for you now. It's called Heidi with the Cats. Heidi. <laughs> Boy, you broke my heart. Why I took our love. Why he hurt. Well, I remember those nights. How we would play. In the back seat of your Hyundai. Heidi! Heidi with the cats. Oh, Heidi with the cats. The pussy lady from Jasper, Indiana. What's new, pussy cat? Jasper, Indiana. Why? We're going to take an intermission break. Jot down your questions for any of your guests. We're going to hear more from Pat coming back after the break. We'll see you in a few minutes. Welcome back. We are glad you have all stuck around. That's a good thing. Um, last time, we, uh, we upset one woman who left, and we're glad that you're all still here. Uh, <laughs> Which is okay. We're, you know, this isn't scripted. This is conversation happening here. We want to welcome uh, Pat Godwin back because I have some questions for Pat. Um, as I mentioned, um, you know, Pat and I were doing comedy around the same time back yeah. in the Philadelphia area. I got out of the business uh, when I moved out here. And I should have. No, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, talking a little bit about how the road has changed since then. You, you're working like. 40, 50 weeks a year. Yeah, it's changed because I think with Netflix and the DUI laws and the economy, people are staying home and, and enjoying it more. We're going out to a nightclub was a kind of a big deal. Now it's a kind of a hassle for some people. Mm -hmm. So you really got to be something special to draw uh, the people out and you know, have some radio credibility, some TV stuff. Now, some mm -hmm. of the YouTube stars and the Instagram stars are still drawing people out to the clubs, but mm -hmm. really good veterans are not. So it's a different uh, it's a different game out there, and you have to figure out how to get people out. Yeah. Has, have the acts themselves changed much? Or if you saw, I mean, except for obviously contemporary references, if you saw an act, you know, mid-90s, mid-2000s to now, is the material significantly different? Some guys don't change and they should, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's really, you can't be tone deaf to what's going on. So you have to really watch your material. And if you're doing something that is edgy, at least acknowledge it and kind of go with it and uh, see how it works for you. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a matter of being clean anymore. It's a matter of just being, you know, proper. 
mm. and realize what's going on right now in the country. Yeah. And, uh, I remember back in the day, before there were the uh, smoking restrictions in clubs, I would come back from a show and have to throw everything immediately in the washing machine. Yeah. Uh, is that a little better now? It's a lot better, <laughs> yeah. Not, being a non-smoker, it's terrific. Yeah. <laughs> um, we talked a little bit about uh, some uh, acts who were, you know, less than, we had less than great feelings about with the Pops Orchestra. I, I've only heard secondhand your stories about a certain guy who wrote and popularized American Pie, Don oh, McLean. Don Could McLean, you share yeah. a little bit of that well, horror sure. story? Uh, I had the great fortune of uh, growing up in an area where we had this great nightclub called the Station Nightclub. And all the kind of uh, stars on their way down kind of a thing would come to our little tiny mining village and entertain us. Uh, they'd probably get 3500 bucks a night to come down. And this is have, in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, right? So you'd yeah. have the Don McLeans come down. And people have had these huge hits, and I was offered the opportunity to open for him. And I thought, oh my gosh, I had a record out, so this would be wonderful for me to get that kind of exposure. Because he packed the place, and I was so excited. But I forgot my guitar tuner, so I was in the dressing room hanging out with the boys, his band, and I asked if I could borrow their guitar tuner. And I, I felt like I was a part of show business. And then Don McLean walks in and tells me, to, what are you doing back here? I said, I'm, you're opening act, Don. It's a pleasure. To, and before I even got that out, uh, he says, get out of here. Get out. And I was like, jeez. I'm supposed to be here. I've opened up a lot of these shows. And then he cursed and said, get the out. And uh, then I cursed back. And you know, it got really kind of weird and ugly. And I was mad when I went on stage. They introduced me. And I, just, I said, this is like the jerkiest guy I've ever met. Jerkiest, famous person I ever met. There'd be more to come. But he was, <laughs> he was a nightmare. Uh, and I was, I was humiliated. And they introduced me. And I go on stage like that. And at this point, I was doing all my own original music and really dark kind of stuff, emotional stuff, and it was not going over that well. I didn't have any of the comedy uh, stuff quite yet. And I, but th this was my hometown, and I had my, my college boys out there that were there to see me and to uh, support me. And I told the story about what just happened, and they were booing Don McLean. And, stuff. <laughs> and, uh, I said, yeah. and I'm thinking, and like five minutes before I was done, uh, I did a couple more songs that kind of went over okay. Five minutes before I was done, I thought, Hey, you know what I'm going to do? He is a jerk. What do you say I do American Pie? <laughs> Ruin his closer because he's a a-hole. And, sure, and I sing this dirty version of American Pie. Bye-bye, <laughs> Don McLean is a dick. Da -da 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 rhymes with... And, uh, and the place is going nuts. They're singing along. And as I'm singing it, I see the shadowy figure to the left of the stage. It's Don McLean glaring me down like, how dare you? And I kept singing it, and the crowd's on their feet. Don McLean is a dick. <laughs> and I closed with standing ovation. All my hometown people are standing up. And I, and I walk by him, and I, I whisper in his ear, don't F with me in my hometown. And, uh, I... Even you know, back in the day when I was doing it, there were uh, a number of acts who, when it would come out with a guitar, and you'd be kind of dreading it because you knew they were just going to do song parodies. Right. That they were going to change three words in a song right. and drag it out for three and a half minutes and do four of those and call it a full act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you feel about uh, those sorts of guitar? I'm leading the witness a little bit, but well, uh, guitar comedy got such a bad name because of those guys. I was doing my own original funny songs. I was starting to talk to people more because my original serious music wasn't going over. And I developed an act. And I would make fun of, like, I'm making fun of Springsteen before, but I actually am a fan. And that's where I took the comedy, goofing on people that I really liked. And it came out as a bit of jealousy, and it was funny. But I never enjoyed the three-minute 
parody of a song, like the, the Weird Al kind of stuff. Uh, the videos are great, but I never, you know, eat it instead of, you know, be, it just was not funny to me. And there were a lot of guys like that. And I just tried to make it original, interesting. And if I did a parody or a short kind of a thing, like I tried to attempt with the woman before, we do a verse and we're out of it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and the, yeah, the, the whole long thing never, because the, the joke is the joke is the joke, just to get it over with. Yeah. yeah, not to dissect it too much, but do you start usually with an impression that you want to do and then figure out where the funny is? Or do you start with a line? Where's, where usually is the starting point into a song? Well, you know, a lot of times what I realize doing Bob and Tom, Tom, who really is a genius, he will he'll say, hey, I need a song on this topic, and I'll do it, and I'll write it in my voice. And Tom will say, hey, why don't you, you know, goof it up a little bit. Like, I do a pretty good Leon Redbone, if you know who that is, the old... <laughs> he loves that voice, so there was something recently that uh, we had done uh, where he asked me to twist it a little bit. And that little twist of a voice made the lyrics funnier. It made the whole thing funnier. You want to do a little bit of that? I, I could do a little bit. It's a little racy, though. Are you okay with racy? Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> Tom, uh... <laughs> maybe. We have a maybe back there. <laughs> Did we already lose a woman from the floor? <laughs> she came back in from last time just so she could leave again. Oh, was, it, was it last Sunday or was it tonight? <laughs> last one. <laughs> oh, you got me up over there? Okay, now bear with me. I'm going to try to edit on the fly. There are no dirty words, but this is extremely racy, and that's what Bob and Tom's all about. So I apologize ahead of time. Tom gave me an assignment. I wrote the song. <laughs> old-timey guy is the Leon Redbone, who's like comments on stuff that's going on now, but in an old-timey style. He says, do something about modern pubic hair. <laughs> are you still with me? <laughs> all right, here we go. Here we go. Way back when I was 22, everybody had hair down there. The girls in Playboy magazine all had pubic hair. I here's the line that's a little racy. I like to take lady lunch. There's a little carpet to munch, but nobody has pubes anymore. <laughs> I'll just do the second verse. Here we go. <laughs> I went to my local gym and all the guys there are hair free. I'm feeling self-conscious because downstairs I'm Duck Dynasty. <laughs> Shaved my junk, had a heart attack. Looks like a baby carrot playing hacky sack. Oh, nobody has pubes anymore. <laughs> Two first version. Please don't leave. Please don't leave. That's a perfect segue to uh, talk a little bit about your life as a parent. Oh, I, that's my son's favorite song. He has no idea what's he, he sings that. Nobody has pubes anymore. I said, Jimmy, stop. My, my son is seven years old. And I know you're looking at me. What are you thinking? I'm making my own grandchildren. Is what I, I have an adorable son. I'm going through a divorce and it's very difficult, but Jimmy travels with me and he performs with me. We do a song called And Jimmy Cried. It's a hilarious <laughs> thing. He, he does like a harmonica thing with his voice and he's just a joy. It's just, it's just phenomenal. Just oh, phenomenal. That's, that's and he's become like a big, he's, he's, he kills on stage. I hope he never loses that because he has no nerves mm -hmm. before he goes on. I am tremendously anxious before I go, go on, but he's just like so pure and I hope he never loses that because he's just so funny. We, I mentioned hell gigs. Usually, yeah. obviously, the Don McLean one is, is up there, although yeah. you turned it around. Um, when you go to a new, how much do you know about a, when you're booked at a place you've never been before, what do you know going in? Just an address? 
Yeah, you don't address and you try to get a feel for the town. If you're in the South, don't make fun of a Southern accent. Uh, just simple things that, you know, you, you don't you don't learn unless you make that mistake. The first time I made the mistake, asking a girl in, you know, let's say Lexington, for example, hey, what's your name? My name's Karen. And then you go, oh, your name's Karen. And the audience doesn't laugh. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't do that the next time. Right. You know, simple simple things like that, learning, learning the crowd. The cruise ships is an enormous learning curve now, you know. Yeah, absolutely, because it's all... Not only is it different parts of the United States, but it's different parts of the world. Right. And now you have to learn, you know. There's a legendary story about Mort Saul, the political comedian, who was got somehow booked on a cruise ship. And usually you do, right, you do one set going out, you do yeah. one set coming back. He did one set going out, and they helicoptered him <laughs> <laughs> off the island. No, they're very, yeah. the thing, I'll t I can tell this pretty quickly about the, Good. okay, I, uh, on Princess, you have to be squeaky clean. So you, know, you have to really examine everything you say. No innuendo. Don't even move your it's, don't even move your hips like your Elvis, or you'll get told about it. That's just the way that's the way the cruise line wants it. Disney's like that too. So uh, I'm performing on Princess, and it's going great. But what you have to understand, if you're a performer, a lot of times in the big theaters, someone's going to leave. They they have another show. Mm -hmm. They have food, and it's not about you or your act. You have to and you have to say something funny, or just not deal with it. This woman had left, and it was so obtrusive. I had to say something. Hey, where are you going? This is a fun show. She goes, you're a marvelous young man, but I want to go upstairs and get some of that delicious chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and, all, and then I thought that was so cute. The audience laughed just like you did. And I said, the chicken is delicious. <laughs> and it was taking her a while. And every time I said chicken, the audience laughed just like, and I was so proud of myself. I got through it. I wasn't embarrassed. I said chicken at the end during the closing piece. Big laugh. And I'm not done three minutes where this new, young, 23-year-old Argentinian cruise director goes, I want to speak to you in the cruise director office. Meet me there in five minutes. I'm like, what the? I didn't do anything. I, I killed. And I'm walking back there. I have no idea what I'm, I know that I'm going to be chastised for something. Did I move my hip? I don't know. What, I don't know what I said. And I sit down. He goes, uh, second show tonight, please. Uh, uh, don't say chicken. <laughs> I said, what? And then he tells me, in Argentina, chicken is a filthy animal, and it's a dirty word. And if I hear one chicken, you're gone! <laughs> wow. One chicken. Ain't nobody here but us chickens. We're going to bring Jack Everly back up so that we can get answer some of the questions that all of you had. During the intermission, we asked some folks to bring in some questions. But first, I want to know... Jack, do you have any questions for Pat? Whoa, I didn't expect that. Or uh, vice versa. Pat, you got a question for Jack? All, we uh, talked before the show yeah, started. I am a huge <laughs> fan of Candide's Overture and saw it in 75 when I was a little kid. My dad yeah. taught theater at uh, Notre Dame and King's College. And you, you knew the name of the theater. Yeah. You knew everything about it. I had it. just moved to New York City because I, I graduated from IU in 74. I moved to New York and saw Candide at the Broadway Theater. Yeah, That so was the kind of immersive. Was the, yes, Hal, yes, Hal Prince version of, of Candide. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you've never seen that show, it's simply phenomenal. It just blew me away. I knew nothing about it. But to this day, I still put that overture on, and that kind of connects me to my late dad. So. The only so place around it, most places don't do a full version of that anymore. Once in a oh. while, IU Opera will do yeah, every now Candide and then. every couple of years. It's, it's the greatest score to the most, <laughs> uh, the oddest story ever that you don't have any empathy for whatsoever. That's a, that's but a it's a great, yeah. great score. Uh, that's why it doesn't get performed yeah. that much. They just did one up at the Goodman Theater a couple yeah. years ago. They rewrote the book again. Yeah, again, and yet again. Like Lillian Hellman's stuff. wasn't good enough, nor was Vol <laughs> Voltaire. <Right>. So <laughs> let's rewrite it. Let's do it again. 
but Pat, I have to say, your spontaneity and how you deal with audiences, I'm so envious of that. Well, Every now and then, something will you know be thrown at me. But you know, audiences for the symphony are very genteel, and they they tend not to respond or throw things at you but every now and then that happens right. and you have to be in the moment and i just so admire that oh thank you thank you of course much. well when people are drinking in the audience and you can see them <laughs> that tends to be yeah trial by fire for some of the comedy we have the clubs. luxury of breaking that wall and just being yeah. ourselves but i mean if you're yeah. in a set show and it's supposed to be a set show it's written for a reason and the notes are there for a reason and the lyrics and the, and the words and if like a cell phone goes off in a period piece, you can't break out in mm. Shakespeare, in Romeo and Juliet and just like all of a sudden yeah. yell at somebody, I can't. Somebody wanted to know, uh, how many homes do you have and where do you consider home given the number of symphonies that you work with? Oh, well, you know, uh, okay, I grew up in Richmond, Indiana, fine. Went to IU, graduated, moved to New York City, and now I live here. Mm -hmm. uh, moved here with my appointment to the orchestra in 2001. Okay. So this is it. Mm -hmm. I travel every place else, and this is my home. But frequent fire miles are... Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. Uh, when did either of you or both first become interested in music? You said you grew up in a... Uh, me, Beatles, Ed Sullivan, and then Elton John. Yeah. Uh, Benny and the Jets, I heard on the radio, and I had to play piano. <laughs> Since I was a kid, my mom played piano, and we were given from her mother their baby grand piano, and that's what did it for me, and I collected classical LPs ever since. Mm -hmm. Somebody wanted to know for... Pat and myself. Gino's or Pat's? Uh, Jim's on 4th and South. Thank you. Yes, that was my answer, too. Gino's and Pat's are no, awful. No, don't They're go there. awful. No, that's these, terrible. These are the two cheesesteak places on the corner across from each other. <laughs> Nonsense. It's just Jim's. junk with whiz on it. Yeah. They actually chop up the meat at Jim's. Just get provolone or a regular white cheese, some onions and green yep. peppers. Leave it at that. Delicious. You're good. I hope that helps. If you leave with nothing else today, you leave with that. Um, we already kind of did that. Let's see what we got here. Oh, from the symphony side, there's in theater and in some of the other arts, there's a greater push for diversity. How does that impact the world of music when there are limited number of you know women composers before 1900? There's limited amount of you know the Great American Songbook stuff. There are some. Is there a sort of conscious effort in symphonic music to be more inclusive, both in performers, in composers, in all of that? Uh, certainly in the pops world there is, and I think there is in the classical world as too. And it's not that they're completely separate. Today they're so, so linked uh, because we know that what's, what's, what's healthy, healthy for one genre is also healthy for the other in the symphonic world. Um, yeah, and diversity means everything from, uh, here's a microcosmic story, if you will. I was, uh, after last year's Yuletide celebration, I was walking our dog, Max, in our neighborhood. And our neighbor, uh, we bumped into each other, and she said, I saw Yuletide for the first time this year, and uh, 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 it feels really awkward to ask this, but do you always have such a d diverse cast? And I was taken <laughs> aback by that. Uh, As if that was a problem? Well, <laughs> thank you. I said, well, yes, we do. <clears throat> because we make an effort, we hire all this great New York talent and some local talent, and we think that we hire the greatest talents, and we're ecstatic when we have this diverse cast of, uh, I'm speaking of, you know, ethnic, of course, and she said, well, as you know, you just moved to our neighborhood, and we're raising this family of, of, of 
uh, adopted children and our, our our own and it's it's what we call this rainbow family she said mm-hmm. and we're just so thrilled yeah. that you're doing that at the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and we're going to come back every year we've just we never knew that and wow that just made a, such well, a difference to that it's me the right thing way. and it's good box office oh yeah <laughs> well it is oh, yeah. but i mean yeah, it's and really, and when you're coming down to it, it's still all about talent. Right. Yeah. How's that with in the comedy clubs? I know it used to be back in the mid '80s. You almost never saw an African American headliner on a three comic show. You almost never saw a woman headliner on a three comic show in the yeah, in true. most of the clubs. Has that changed much? I mean, it's it's changed to the point of they package the people together. Uh, it's not it's not that diverse in the sense that we always have maybe a female comedian who's good, and there's a lot of great ones, or an African American comedian on with a white guy, and you don't realize the time. But the, the clubs do definitely book it a certain way, you mm-hmm. know, and nothing much has changed really. Yeah, yeah, you you may see three white guys performing, yeah. but you're never going to see three African American performers Probably unless not. they're labeling it. Yeah, some kind as of a story, certain yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, somebody asked, what pieces of music have been profoundly important to you uh, for their impact on your life? And a second question with this, are you familiar with the score to Victory at Sea? Uh, is it being performed anywhere? Victory at Sea is not being performed anywhere. <laughs> I played that first in the Richmond Senior High School Orchestra. Thank you very much. <laughs> the recording and available of that? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Richard Rogers wrote this, and it was a big deal. He wrote all these themes, and then his orchestrator, uh, Robert Russell Bennett put it all together for the TV series uh, Victory at Sea, and it's considered iconic. And Boston Pops recorded it, and it sold zillions of albums. It's a big deal, Victory mm-hmm. at Sea, and it's some of Richard Rogers' most marvelous themes. So, sadly, it's not being done today. It's considered uh, kind of archaic in a way, um, which is too bad because it's just great music. Thank you, Richard Rogers, and. Uh, that was indeed one of the first pieces that made such a difference for me. The, there was a musical called Kismet that changed my life. It was a, the Russian composer Borodin as adapted by two Americans who made it into a Broadway musical comedy and it came to Clues Hall in the first or second year of Clues Hall's opening. Mm-hmm. And my parents brought me to Indianapolis to see that and there was the original star, Alfred Drake, mm-hmm who was the king of Broadway. He was the original Curly in Oklahoma, the original Petruchio in Kiss Me Kate. He won the Tony Award for Hodge and Kismet, and there he was on the stage of Clues Hall, and it changed my life. And that music of Borodin, the Russian composer, and as adapted for a Broadway musical comedy, made every difference for me in the world. When you see a show that when you're that young that's influential for yeah. you, you sometimes feel like, I really shouldn't see it again because my sort of romanticized it. I saw the yeah. first full musical I ever saw in a tent theater was John Raitt doing Shenandoah. Oh my God. Oh, wow. And, oh, and I loved, I mean, I was crazy about it, but I kind of feel like maybe I shouldn't see Shenandoah again and just hang on to that. John's the nicest guy in the world. I, I'm so lucky to get to work with him. I saw the original with John Cullum on Broadway. Cullum. That show is incredible. Oh, okay. really so wonderful score. Revivable, you think? I think it is. Yeah. yeah, it's very classic. Very Rosenheimerstein, if you will, even yeah. though it's not theirs. Uh-huh. Um, somebody wanted to know your favorite bad punny dad joke. Uh, I think I told you before we started the show. This isn't a punny one, but it's kind of funny. It's something we talked about before. My dad uh, would take me to the Shakespearean Festival in Canada every year, and I loved it. And I, even though I didn't like Shakespeare, it was a way to be with my father. And um, I'm in the third grade, and we saw Romeo and Juliet. And I asked my dad, I said, uh, Dad? 
did Romeo and Juliet sleep together? Did they make love? And Dad said, well, in the Chicago company they did. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize how funny that was till the seventh grade. <laughs> Do you have a favorite bad oh, joke? My, oh, bad like, pun joke? You know, bad, you know, quickie. Oh. I'll flip over to Jack yeah, while you're thinking. Thing. You got one? You got an old joke that you like? No. No? <laughs> Sorry. Well, back, back in Wildwood, New Jersey, there was an entertainer, a guy named Cozy Morley. If you get a chance, look up Cozy Morley. Cozy Morley is the reason why I know a lot of these great American songbook songs. Cozy would come out with his banjo, and he would have a variety show. He would have a magician, and he would have you know, a singer who had like one hit in the 50s, and he would have this variety show. Had a band of like three people. His club was falling apart. You could see through the floorboards. <laughs> but he would do these old songs, on his, and then he would tell jokes in between. And I, I love this guy. It was the first place you could get in with a fake ID, without, without a fake ID. We got in without a problem and would see him. One of them, it's going to be terrible. So Kit goes into a confession, little kid. And the priest says, well, what do you have to tell me? He says, well, I, uh, I lied to my parents twice, and I hit my brother, and I threw pickles off the parkway overpass. And the priest says, OK, we'll say to our fathers, the three Hail Marys, and go and sin no more. He says, great. Next kid comes in. He says, so uh, what do you have to tell me? He says, well, I lied to my parents twice. I was rude to my teacher, and I threw pickles off the parkway overpass. He goes, that's odd. Um, go say three Hail Marys to our fathers and sin no more. Another kid comes in. What did you do? Well, I uh, lied to my parents. I was mean to my teachers. I wasn't nice to my brother, and I threw pickles off the parkway overpass. He goes, OK, go say three Hail Marys to our fathers and sin no more. Another kid comes in and he says, don't tell me. You, you lied to your parents, you were mean at school, and you threw pickles off the parkway overpass. He goes, no, I'm pickles. Dumb <laughs> <laughs> joke. But thank you, Cozy Morley, for lodging that in my brain. <laughs> Cozy Morley. Look him up. He sang uh, On the Way to Cape May was his signature know song. Yeah. You know? Anyway, you got a joke? You know, I just grew up with Archie Bunker, basically, so it's really just yelling at my grandmother to hurry the hell up. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else we got? Um, oh, somebody had asked about the recent production of Oklahoma at St. Anne's Warehouse, if you're familiar about that, in Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned how reticent on a smaller, stripped-down orchestra. Uh, what, is, what if the choice is purposeful or site-specific for a musical? Are there times when something that was originally written for a full orchestra still works in a different format or with a different size orchestra? Yeah, you can always pare things down. Mm -hmm. It's the, the, the challenge, frankly, is if you have, uh, would you do Dames at Sea, for example, with a symphony orchestra? No. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a marvelous piece. It's just perfection as a parody, but you wouldn't yeah. do that. But there was a, a two piano version of The Most Happy Fella, which yes, didn't to there me work at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I saw that, was, and the performances were marvelous. But there you are in a Broadway theater, and you're hearing twin pianos, and it yeah. doesn't work. And the original orchestration is superb and adds so much to the emotion. So it was just a matter of economics. So don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes a concept yeah. does make some sense. It can. Um, is there a particular piece you think of, uh, that you think of as the most absurd that you were required to play due to its popularity. You sometimes hit something that you genuinely you either do not like or think is bad. Oh yeah, flash dance. <laughs> oh no. Oh. Oh god. What a feeling As, that must have what been. What a feeling. <laughs> we and I can't. Did you wear leg warmers at least? My look into some of the musicians' eyes as we were playing that was like, really? <laughs> 
really, we're playing this. You you program this, right? Where did you have to play that? What was the circle? Well, the audience loved it, and it was a great orchestration. I'll give it that. And it really worked because of the orchestration. But we thought, wow, have we stooped? (laughs) Was that a summer summer? No. Oh, yeah. Any, no. Let's talk about that for a second. Any particular challenge, part of what you're doing in the summer is performing out at Conner Prairie. Yeah. Symphony yeah. on the Prairie. What's different about a outdoor oh. concert? Than- well, f- uh, first of all, uh, I, uh, I grew up, as, you know, and I said this again, Richmond, Indiana, really quickly, and we, was, we would go to the Cincinnati Opera, which was in the zoo, <laughs> the Cincinnati Zoo. It used to be there. It was marvelous. Uh, full productions of great operas. And every time Beverly Sills would go for a high C, you'd hear the peacocks going, ah! <laughs> <laughs> It's great. It's great. So ever since, ever since, I have loved the idea wow. of live, beautiful classical symphonic music outside. Wow. It's wonderful. The humidity and the air, and it's marvelous. So that's why I, I adore Connor Prairie. But for a conductor, it's a little different because you're dealing with, you know, you, you breathe in, you've got a moth coming in through your head, and, <laughs> and you, there's lots of ambient noise and all that. And when you're talking to the audience, you hit nothing. It's mm. crickets because they're so far away, and it's outdoors, and you try to tell a joke maybe, and it lands like thud. Uh, not that Pat knows what that's like. And it is, <laughs> it is, it is so different. So you, you have to just think a different pacing, a different rhythm, and yet you turn around and there's this marvelous music mm-hmm. in the summer air. It's magic, yeah. really. What, any unusual venues or ones where you had to sort of shift gears because of where the atmosphere? Where do I atmosphere? start? <laughs> <laughs> because of the atmosphere or the... Oh my gosh, sometimes you get uh, paid a good amount of money and you, you say yes right away without asking too many questions, you know? Yeah. Speaking of outdoors for comedy is just death for us. Right. It needs to be yeah. kind of enclosed and intimate. This is a perfect yes. little room. Uh, but you, somebody calls you up says, hey, I got this amount of money to do the Iowa Fair this year in Independence. And you get there and uh, you're on a trailer and it's 105 degrees and everybody's under a tree 300 yards away. Right. And it's a nightmare. You just, you know, you just got to think about that money and get yeah. through it. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of my last gigs before I retired from the business was a New Year's show, and New Year's shows are always the big, you know, the oh, best yeah, the money, money you ever money. made and everything else. And I got booked into somebody's private party, and I thought, okay, I'm going to play, you know, some event or whatever. It was somebody's private party in their home. Yep. And I drove up to Allentown, Pennsylvania, sure. suburban Allentown, and I go in, and they, there's a big crowded party, and everyone's standing up. It's not like a seated thing and everything else. And they say, oh, you'll perform over there. Yeah. And they pointed to a corner of the room. There were no lights. There were no seats. There was no microphone. Basically, they wanted me to stand in a corner and be funny. And I re- this is this is awful. I am just gonna, I'm going to plant my feet down and I'm going to go yeah. through 20 minutes and hope for you know hopefully yeah. four like literally four people could see me who were standing right here. Two of them with their backs turned to me with drinks. That was one of the ones that got out. One of the ones that actually worked out pretty well. Would you remember Frank Barnett? Of course. Okay, Frank was a tall guy. Very tall. I'm working. During the comedy boom time, every play, it wasn't like you had to have a comedy club. It would be like there'd be a small room somewhere that they weren't doing anything on a Saturday uh, or a Sunday night or whatever. Let's do one night of comedy and you get booked and you get three acts in there. So it worked at this bar and the setup was we were at this end of the room um, standing on a pretty tall stage and the round bar was right here and the audience was behind the bar and a few people sitting at the bar, which was awkward to begin with. But I went up on stage, I was going to MC it, so I would do 
you know, 15 minutes and then I'd introduce the other acts. Well, I got up there and I realized the ceiling was this close, literally an inch above my head. And I'm in the middle of my act and I'm realizing, next up is Frank Barnett, who was four inches taller than me. Is he gonna be Quasimodo up there? What's he gonna do? But I'm trying to, you know, not let be distracted by that, but I can't help but thinking about what is Frank Barnett gonna do? Well, I didn't realize how smart the guy was, how brilliant the guy was. Um, so I introduce him, he comes bouncing up on stage, punches the drop ceiling tile out and does the whole act with his head through the drop ceiling. I admired that guy ever since. Just amazingly, you know, just rolling with it. You, you know, sometimes you just have to do, um, do what it is. Um, another attendee here wanted to know, you've often mentioned your experiences on Broadway during your ISO Pops concerts. Enjoy hearing about them. How did you progress to conducting orchestras on Broadway? What was the step that led you into um, being able to conduct? You talked a little bit about that earlier. I did. It was a, it was a crucial audition for uh, the music director of the Houston Grand Opera, and he was, or they were co-producing the Hello Dolly revival. So I auditioned for him, and it was an interesting audition because I had already done Hello Dolly at the Richmond Civic Theater, hello, mm -hmm. and uh, the Merry-Go-Round Playhouse in Auburn, New York. So I knew the show backwards and forwards. And he said, okay, um, he's, he's a brilliant musician. And he said, I'm going to play the piano, and so that's the orchestra, and I'm going to sing like Carol. <laughs> And I thought, <laughs> okay, what is, I don't know what that means. Rich Little. <laughs> well, it wasn't as though he was going to in, in so much impersonate, which he did, Carol Channing, but that he was going to back phrase. Uh -huh. And back phrase is what she did. And she would, so you'd hit a chord and go, I've always been a woman who arranges things. And because I can't have a piano here, you can't sense <laughs> that he would be playing and singing behind the beat. Playing and singing behind the beat. He said, now how are you going to conduct that? Mm. I went, oh. <laughs> so... I did, and apparently what I did was exactly what should be done, even though I had never faced that before uh, in my life. He said, you have the job. Pass that. So there, that were that, there was that. For both of you, are there you know, people who at the time were unknowns, who you worked with, who you thought that person's gonna, that person's gonna be a star, or that person really has it, and then oh. watch them you know, go on to, you know, I tell, sometimes I look through, programs of plays that I've been in, th you know, I think of somebody who was great and try to see, did that person end up, you know, really making it? Are there people who you've, you know, worked with? Well, I worked with a kid, he's on Comedy Central now, you may or may not know who this is, Daniel Tosh, who was just an MC and terrible, until he had this, he had this one great joke at the end of his set, and I went, what? Because he was just kind of physical and goofy. And then a year later, he had a whole 45 minutes of all great jokes, and I went, that, <laughs> that guy's really gonna make it, and he's killed. But there was one person who did a great comedy act, but I despised, and I did, never thought he'd make it because he was just so unlikable, and that was Jerry Seinfeld, so I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> wow. and yeah, uh, years and years ago, we worked with a guy who's a wonderful baritone. We thought, okay, lovely singer, fantastic, he's gonna go places, Ben Crawford was his oh. name. He is currently the Phantom of the Opera on Broadway, and we are creating a one-man show for him that's gonna happen this coming winter. 
at the ISO. He was and he was in Shrek as well, right? He, yes, was in, he was also uh, in Shrek. He was Shrek yeah. on Broadway and Big Fish. You're right, yeah. and uh, he has been the co-host of Yuletide Celebration, and he's in, just incredible. So it was it's so gratifying to see someone at the beginning, mm -hmm. and to see them you know move on. You right. think, wow, good for you. This is tough <laughs> business, and if you can manage that, you've got it. Right. And having some room to fail is helpful, especially Absolutely. like in the comedy club yeah. world. Yeah. Um, we're going to wrap things up. This has been quite wonderful. I'd like to thank uh, my co-host, Tracy Herring, and our guests, Pat Godwin and Jack Everly. I'd also like to thank producer Patrick Chastain, sound guy Miles Hall, and the staff here at The Aristocrat. Thanks also go out to Paul Scolari and Andy Scarpatti, who gave me my first paid stand-up comedy gigs. To the comedy group The Subrettes, who I used to open for and who let me propose to my then-girlfriend on their stage in the basement of the Society Hill Playhouse in Philadelphia. I want to thank Cindy Harry for saying yes. I want to thank Megan Lawrence for being the best Miss Adelaide I've ever seen in the ISO's Guys and Dolls a wow. decade ago. I want to thank the 20 Midwest kids I just chaperoned around New York for never telling me to shut up. When I even when I had them dissecting transit poetry. I want to thank Casey Ross, who's producing my play Popular Monsters, opening October 25th. And I want to thank Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney Jr., and Forrest Ackerman for inspiring it. And a special thanks to the live audience here at The Aristocrat. Let's get together again soon. Until then, keep your hearts and your minds open. Thank you very much, and have a good night. Yay.